We have finished up our study of certain Old Testament stories and narratives, and we're going to do some summer series on different topics. And the topic that I've chosen for this morning is the topic of boycotts and cancel culture. I was going to begin perhaps by showing a video from a movie that we watched as a men's conference when we were doing our men's brunch two years ago. And I'll probably send out the link for that because I think it will tie in very well with what we're talking about this morning. And that was the subject of cancel culture and boycotts. It's kind of a strange subject to be talking about on a Sunday morning in church. And the difficulty of addressing current events is that you have to know your Bible really well to be able to take the principles that are in the Bible and to accurately and skillfully apply those to what is happening in our current time and place. And so you can pray for me that God will give me the skill and the ability to do that today as I've spent a lifetime studying verse by verse through scriptures, listening to Bible teaching Hopefully I have some wisdom from God's word that we can bring together to help us navigate how to deal with the culture that we live in where we have, starting with some who are considered on the left, canceling those who think differently from what they think is moral and good. You can check out the video that I send out this week on one experience of a Christian man, Juan Riesco, and his deli in Chicago. But you can also think of more high-profile national news the canceling of Mike Lindell and MyPillow, the canceling of Goya Foods and Gina Carano and other national figures and businesses because they were not going along with what most of the people in positions of power in the media thought were the correct and, and right positions. And now, just recently, seems like the tables have been flipped a little bit and some of the large businesses like the Anheuser-Busch Corporation with Bud Light Target and Disney are experiencing boycotts because many people in our culture think that they've gone too far and have done things that are not right. Most recently also there was a a big protest outside of Dodger Stadium as we had a pride night there at Dodger Stadium and a gay pride event was bringing in anti-Catholic nuns and that uh, really stirred the pot. People thought that was going too far. And so we live in a culture where there is this boycott mentality and canceling, and they really go closely hand in hand. Now, as I set the stage for our thinking this morning, I want you to think about what is our relationship as individuals, as Christians, to large corporations. Think about banks like J.P. Morgan, Bank of America, or Wells Fargo. Think of software companies like Google or Microsoft or Apple. Think about pharmaceutical companies like Pfizer and Johnson & Johnson, major retailers like Amazon and Walmart. These companies, these corporations, have become quite powerful and influential, almost rivaling or surpassing many national governments in their revenues and in their influence in the world. And so how we as Christians interact with these powerful entities is something that's worth taking a look at together as a family and discussing from God's word. There's issues of free speech, there's issues of monopolies, there's issues of crony capitalism, and it really gets complicated, so it's hard to boil it down to what are the simple basic principles that the Bible gives us that will help us to navigate some of these more complex ethical situations that we find ourselves in. To put it simply, should Christians engage in boycotts of immoral companies? If so, to what extent? 
what are the biblical guidelines as we engage in something like a boycott? And are conservative Christians hypocrites when they denounce cancel culture but then participate in and even lead in boycotts? So these are some of the questions that I want us to consider from God's Word this morning. Well, we're going to be putting a lot of verses up on the screen this morning, and so I can't tell you where to open your Bible, although at the end of the message we are going to be spending quite a bit of time in Titus chapter 2. So if you want to go ahead and open to Titus chapter 2, you can. But most of our verses are going to be on the PowerPoint, and I'm going to be moving pretty quickly, so you probably won't have time to turn to all the Bible passages. But I encourage you to take notes, jot them down, and it's a great way to be able to go back and take a look at the context and make sure that I'm properly using these verses and not ripping them out of their context. You need to be good Bereans and do that. Don't just trust preachers. Now, the first thing that you want to do when you're looking at this subject of boycotts and cancel culture or any controversial subject is make sure that you understand what it is that you're talking about. And so it's good to start off with definitions, definitions that we can agree upon, definitions that we can then build our discussion off of. If we're meaning different things by what we're saying, then it's hard to communicate. And there's a lot of breakdown in communication, sadly, in our world today. So let's take a look at what are we talking about? What are the definitions for canceling someone or for holding a boycott? Well, canceling is a relatively new term. The word's been around a long time, but this new use of the word is about the mid part of the 2010s. So within the last 10 years, this word cancel has come into common use to describe withdrawing one's support for someone, like a celebrity, or something, such as a company, publicly, and especially on social media. So is it wrong or is it right to withdraw your support for someone publicly on social media? Well, that's a morally neutral thing. I mean, it can be good to withdraw support from somebody who is a bad person. You don't want to support bad people or bad companies. And it can be also a bad thing if you're withdrawing your support from someone who's good. And so to cancel someone, to withdraw your support from someone, well, it depends upon whether or not you understand who is a good person and who is not a good person. And that's something we're going to be getting into a lot this morning, is that we've got different definitions in our culture of what is virtue and what is vice, what is good and what is bad, what promotes human flourishing, as the humanist would say it, and what promotes godliness, as the Christian might say it. And so the humanist is going to cancel someone who had disagrees with his values, the Christian is going to cancel someone who disagrees with his values, and this is a normal part of life. We shouldn't look down on anybody for not supporting someone that they don't agree with, that they think is a bad influence, a negative influence on society. That's how I want to be treated. I don't want to be expected to support things that I disagree with, and so I don't expect other people to support things that they disagree with. That's something that we should all be able to agree on. So canceling in and of itself is not a bad thing, but I didn't title this morning's message, Cancellation and Boycotting. I titled this morning's message, Cancel Culture and Boycotting. So if this is what canceling is, what is cancel culture? Well, here's one definition from a Christian source, and I'll recognize that's my Christian bias. This is, a, this is a definition that I think is common among Christians when they hear the word cancel culture. It's the modern social attitude that controversial speech or behavior must be punished. See, so there's something different. We're not just talking about withdrawing support. We're talking about actively punishing. And there is a difference there. It's important to recognize these things. 
that controversial speech or behavior must be punished through public shaming, silencing, boycotting, firing, bankrupting, deplatforming, etc. The result is that the offender's influence, presence, and or reputation is canceled out. So this isn't just an individual saying, well, I'm not going to support this person or I'm not going to subscribe to their podcast or I'm not going to listen to their tweets anymore. This is a culture, a group, that is trying to completely cancel out the offender's influence, presence, or reputation. And it goes beyond not just supporting, but now you're publicly shaming, you're silencing, you're boycotting, you're firing, you're bankrupting, you're deplatforming. So cancel culture is on another level than what we're talking about when people just started talking about canceling somebody personally or individually. So here's where we start to get into many complicated issues. Public shaming. What are we supposed to think of public shaming? Silencing. What does that mean in our modern age with all of the ways that we have to get our voice out? Have you been silenced if you've been taken off of a certain platform? The deplatforming. The firing and the boycotting and the bankrupt. This is all pretty complex. And so we've got to break it down into some basic principles and find out what do we build our view of this cancel culture? How do we think about it? rationally, biblically, and benevolently, all right? So, one other definition I think it's important to lay out here at the beginning is the definition of boycott, since that was also in my title. The word boycott actually is much older. It goes back to the 19th century. It's actually named after a man whose last name was Boycott, and so ever since he got boycotted, everyone that's been boycotted since is as a result of this poor guy who uh, was involved with land disputes and rental disputes in Ireland back in the 19th century. And what happens when you're boycotted is that there is a concerted refusal to have dealings with that person, that store, or that organization, usually to express disapproval or to force acceptance of certain conditions. Okay? So that's what we're talking about when we're talking about a boycott. I think Merriam-Webster has a good and fair definition there. So that's our definitions. That shows us that we're dealing with some pretty complicated issues, and so we need to get some simple principles that are going to guide us through our thinking so that we don't make mistakes here. And the first biblical principle that I want us to look at is the principle of economic freedom. The principle of economic freedom. This is a very important one. The key scripture verse that I have chosen for us on this subject this morning, although I think you can find it throughout scripture, is in Matthew chapter 20, verse 15. And I like the way the New American Standard Bible states this in its translation. Here, Jesus is telling a parable, and in the parable, the landowner says, Is it not lawful for me to do what I want with what is my own? And if he wants to hire someone at a certain wage to work in his field... And if that other person agrees to work in the field at that, then I have the freedom to make the offer. You have the freedom to accept the offer. This is how financial transactions are supposed to take place. And this is beneficial for everyone. It's beneficial for society to have economic freedom, that I can choose who I want to do business with. You can choose who you want to do business with. And there's, there's nobody telling us, well, you have to do business with this person or you can't do business with that person. But instead, we are all benefited when we have the freedom of choice to say, well, it benefits me to sell this product at this price or it benefits me to buy this product at this price and to have that freedom. And that way, society is able to mutually benefit and encourage one another through these willing transactions. And so this is a principle you find throughout Scripture. 
one that is not a Marxist principle, but is more of a free market principle. And this gets also to the roots of some of the differences in the cancel culture and the boycotts, is are we operating from a free market principle, where people have the freedom of economic choices for what they want, or are we operating on a top-down authoritarian economic model where people are told what they can buy and sell and how they can buy and sell and how much they have to buy and sell for, the Bible is on the side of freedom when it comes to this issue and this debate. Now, if I was going to go really into that, that'd be a whole sermon by itself. But I just want to lay out this basic principle of free markets, and hopefully you can see that that is a biblical principle that is very important in this subject of boycotting. I mean, if you don't have the freedom to choose who you buy from and who you don't buy from, well, then you don't have the freedom to boycott. And so that economic freedom is an important principle. So... When we're talking about how an economy works, I just want to lay out some very basic understanding. Sadly, this is not taught as it should be in a lot of our society, that money is a communication of value. What is money? How does it function? Well, money communicates value. If I think something is valuable, then I'm willing to pay a certain amount of money for what I consider to be valuable. Money talks is an old saying. And so money is how you communicate to the marketplace what you find valuable and what you don't find valuable and how much value you find in that thing. What you're willing to pay for it is how much you value it. Now, that form of honor is what you see reflected here in 1 Timothy 5.17. It's the basic principle that's underlining the instruction that is here. As Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus, and Timothy is there, he says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. And there that double honor is referring to the payment that the church gives to those who are devoting themselves to the work of preaching and teaching and pastoring the church. The elders who are ruling well are worthy of that honor. And so the money that is given is an honor. It's a communication that we value what it is that you're doing. And so if you run a business and people are paying you for the work that you do, that's a communication that people value the work that you are doing, the products that you are providing, the services that you are providing. That's a, a basic economic understanding that is important when you're getting into this type of discussion on a free market and how we need to have that kind of freedom to support the things that we find valuable and not support the things that we don't find valuable. You here find it valuable to have the word of God preached. And so you give so that I can devote myself full-time to the preaching and teaching of God's word. Now, other Christians don't necessarily like what I'm doing, and they don't support it. They don't come here on the Sunday morning, they don't put any money in the offering, and that's fine. They have the freedom to choose what they want to support. They can support their church, you can support your church, and that's a communication of what we value, and we allow people to have different values from one another, and we don't demand that everybody values what we value, but instead we allow people to have that freedom, to value and to reflect that value in how they spend their money. So that's an important principle. Now, another verse here that I thought was helpful as we think through money and economic liberty is Zechariah chapter 11, verse 13. And there, you can look it up and you get the whole context. What I want you to see from this verse is that the value that we place on things is subjective. You're going to value some things more than me, and I'm going to value some things more than you. And that's not always bad. 
There might be a reason, a good reason why you value something more and I value it less. Maybe you need it for your business and I don't need it for my business, right? I'm willing to buy all these things for my work that you don't need to buy for your work. And so that's okay. The value that we place on things is subjective. And subjective doesn't mean wrong, but subjective also doesn't mean that it can never be wrong. You can be wrong in your own subjective valuation, and that's what I want you to see from this verse. You see, here the people were valuing the word of the Lord. The Bible talks a lot about the word of the Lord, so we're talking about value. We first look at the elders, how they were considered worthy of double honor. Well, here we see the opposite, where the people of Israel are not valuing the prophet. And the Lord said, throw the 30 shekels of silver to the potter, the lordly price at which I was priced by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. So when Zechariah was paid for his service of ministering the word of God, they valued that very low. And they insulted God by how little they valued it. That was their subjective evaluation of what Zechariah's ministry was worth. However, even though it was subjective, it was still wrong. It was foolish. They should have valued the Lord's prophet much higher than they did. And so just because something is subjective doesn't mean it can't be foolish, doesn't mean it can't be wrong. It still can be foolish and wrong, but it's not necessarily. It can be right too, and you can be right when you properly value something. So I want you to learn the difference between objective truth and subjective truth. We're not talking about true and false. That's different. Objective truth is how much value the thing has inherently. Subjective truth is how much is it worth to me. So the objective value of a plow you know, it might be thousands of dollars, but it's not worth thousands of dollars to me because I don't plow. I don't need a plow. And so there's the, the subjective and the objective, and they're both important. They're both real. All right, so we see that money is a communication of value. And so part of free speech is to communicate the value by what you're willing to spend for something. If you can't communicate value, if that's set by someone else, and you've lost your economic freedom, and that is unbiblical. That's an authoritarian system that goes against the dignity that God has given to us and created us as free people. Now, in Revelation 13, 17, we see the ultimate example of this type of top-down, authoritarian, anti-free market mindset in the person of the beast. The beast is the Antichrist, as many people know him, in the book of Revelation. And the Bible prophesies that in the end times, which are still yet to come, There's going to come this evil person who's going to become a global leader who is going to make it so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark of the beast. That is the name of the beast or the number of its name. And in the next verse, it mentions that the number is 666. So here is a limitation on whether you're free to buy or sell based upon your loyalty to this world leader. And again, that is something that is a mark of, of a satanic leader, that he's going to control your buying and your selling unless you swear loyalty to him. So I bring up verses like this to show you the principle of economic freedom in Scripture. It's a good thing. And we want people to have their freedom. We want people to use their freedom wisely. However, we can't force people to use their freedom wisely. What we want to do is we want to educate people so that they become more wise, so that they use their freedom in their best interest and also in the best interest of their neighbor and also glorifying to God. Don't want to leave that out. So the second principle that is important when we're looking at this subject of boycotts and cancel culture is the principle of equality under the law. 
Equality under the law is, once again, a, a traditional Christian value that is being replaced by a Marxist value. And the Marxist values are that you don't have to have equality under the law, but that in order to address past grievances, you can treat certain groups badly and treat certain groups differently in order to try to level out what was done wrong in the past. And so this is denying the autonomy of the individual. It's making groups of people guilty for the sins of their ancestors. And usually it's not even doing that very well because it doesn't have a proper ethical system in order to interpret those past situations. And it's often done for the wrong reasons by those who are in charge. They sell it as if they are seeking justice, but really what they are seeking is power. And this is something that you see through Marxist history, if you read your 20th century history. And the principle of equality under the law is a biblical principle, it's a Christian principle, that has benefited people wherever it has been implemented and properly carried into action. And I'll show you that this is a biblical principle. One example, several examples in the Old Testament law, But here, one in Exodus chapter 12, verse 49, God wanted his people to know that there shall be one law for the native, for the stranger who sojourns among you. We don't have a two-tier justice system here. Not like this group gets privileges that this group doesn't get. There's one law. Whether you're rich or whether you're poor, whether you're native-born or whether you're a foreigner, the law applies to everyone, and everyone is underneath the law in the same way. This should be the goal of every governing official, and every government in the world, that there is this equality under the law. This is one of the reasons why we have so much conflict in our culture, is that this principle is no longer agreed upon and is being replaced by the Marxist principle of preferential treatment for certain groups and negative treatment for other groups. And that leads to a lot of suffering, as we've seen in the 20th century. We want to avoid that. So, another principle that I find key here in the equality under the law is Proverbs chapter 20, verse 10. Here, we are told that unequal weights and unequal measures are both alike an abomination to the Lord. You don't want to have unequal weights and measures. What's the proverb, what's the Solomon talking about when he's talking about unequal weights and measures? Well, this goes back to the law also. And what God was trying to make sure was that when the person was buying, he didn't have a weight that benefited him. So when I'm buying, I've got a heavyweight because I give you, you know, $5 for a pound of whatever. And if my pound is heavier, when you put it on the scale, then I'm getting more. And that's an unequal weight. But when I'm selling, I've got a weight that weighs a little bit less. And so it's only, you know, 4.78 pounds instead of the 5 pounds or whatever. Uh, wait, I switched from pounds to dollars. Sorry about that. It's only point, you know, 0.95 pounds instead of 1 pound. And so when I'm selling, I'm, I'm giving you less. And when I'm buying, I'm getting more. And I'm cheating through this unequal weights and measures. And here, this is related to the principle of equality under the law because it also applies to other areas of life besides buying and selling. It also applies to the distribution of the law and justice in society. If there's certain groups where you have a different weight of justice and a heavier weight for justice for these groups and you're applying the law differently based upon something about that person, well then that is unbiblical, that is immoral, that is unwise, and it is unhealthy for society. So we've got to have these principles of equality under the law and no double standards. We don't want a double standard of unequal weights and measures in our justice system. 
This is connected to another problem of false equivalence. When you get into a discussion and a debate about boycotts, you say, well, you know, here Christians are boycotting a business that they don't like what the business has been promoting publicly. And so you Christians were mad at us when we boycotted your business, and now you're doing the same thing. We have to step back and say, well, let's examine it carefully. What exactly about your boycott were we criticizing? What exactly about our boycott are you criticizing? Because a boycott can be done in a good way or it can be done in a bad way. A boycott is not in and of itself a bad thing, but it's how you're going about it, what principles you are defending and what principles you are using in your boycott that we'll see as we go along. So just want to establish these basic ideas of the danger of false equivalence. That's comparing apples to oranges. They're really different. You're saying they're the same thing, but we're talking, they're actually different when you analyze them. And then also the equal justice under the law and the equal distribution of the law to all people. For example, just recently, two weeks ago, there was the Supreme Court ruling on the evangelical Christian website designer who had been sued for refusing to serve LGBTQ plus customers, citing her First Amendment's free speech rights. And in a six to three decision, by the Supreme Court, the court said that wedding websites are a form of speech and that Colorado's anti-discrimination law cannot force a designer to express something that she does not wish to express. More broadly speaking, the ruling said certain businesses can refuse some services to LGBTQ plus people or any customer whose message they might oppose and wish not to express. So let's take the principle here of the unequal weights and measures and apply it to a situation like this. So as an evangelical Christian, it might be easy for us to say, yeah, it's not right to force this person who's like me to do something that he or she doesn't want to do, but let's put the shoe on the other foot, okay? What if we as a church wanted to get some services done for our church, and a Muslim or Catholic or some other religious person said, well, you know, I really don't like your message. I don't like what your church stands for. And so I don't really want to bless you with my services. I don't want to have to build your website. I don't want to have to work on your church building or, or whatever. Would we think that that person should be forced by the government? Should we be able to sue that person for refusing service to us because we're Christians? Think about it. This is what you always want to do in these types of debates. You always want to put yourself on the other side of the issue. This is using equal weights and measurements. And so, if I think that this Christian person should have the right to refuse service when it goes against something that she believes in, well, then I should be willing to give that right to other people, that they also can refuse service to me if they don't like what my business or my church or my nonprofit is about. So, this is a, an important principle. I just wanted to give you that illustration to start thinking about that. Think about it in that way. Make a practice of that. Would I like it if this was done to me? The golden rule goes a long way. The Lord Jesus Christ told us, however we want to be treated, that's how you treat other people. And so you walk by the golden rule, you won't go far wrong in your ethical dealings. All right, so... We're laying out biblical principles here. We've got the first two, economic freedom. We should be free to do what we want with our own money. We should be free to value things how we value them, to engage in trade and commerce according to our own free will, and we should have equality under the law in our government. That means we should be willing to be treated the way that we want others to treat us. And then thirdly, we've got the social freedom. 
And I want you to understand this. You've got power to impact society with your money. Now, you don't have a lot of power because you don't have a lot of money. You're just one little small fish in a great big economy of billions and billions and billions of dollars. But you do have power. And what you choose to value and what you spend your money on does affect what is produced and what is valued and what it's valued at. And so you should use your economic power, as small as it is, because it doesn't matter how much you have or how little you have in God's sight. God just cares about what do you do with what you have? Are you being responsible? Are you doing what's right and good and fair and just? And so you want to use what little economic power you have to promote things that are good. And everybody should do that. And the important thing then is, of course, to have that discussion. Well, what is good? How do we know what's good? Without God and without the Bible, how is there any understanding of what is good except for what we make up and can change at any moment? So not only do you have economic power, but you also have political power. Not a lot. You know, you got one vote out of 350 million people for the presidency coming up. Not a lot of power, but it's not about how much power you have. It's about what you do with the power that you have, right? And so you want to vote wisely. You want to spend wisely. And you also have power socially. You have economic power, you have political power, you have social power. And so with what little social power you have, you know, you're, you're not uh, having 70 million followers on Twitter or Instagram or whatever. Whatever social power you have, use it to honor what is good and to shame what is bad. And well, Timothy, that doesn't sound very Christian. Now, we're not supposed to shame people. We're not supposed to shame anybody or anything. Actually, let's talk about that. This is really going to turn into a sermon about shame. <laughs> and there is nothing wrong. Let me lay, lay myself out here at the beginning. There's nothing wrong with shaming bad behavior. Now, that doesn't mean that everyone always does it the right way. There's a lot of people who shame bad behavior, and they, they don't do it very well. And so most people think of shaming, they just think of the negative examples. But let me give you a positive example of something I think we can all agree on. If your child has a habit of picking his nose in public, you might appreciate it if somebody would help you to shame him or her for that activity. Now, you don't have to put them up on stage and put a sign around their neck or anything like that, you know, nose picker, but just a little, no, just a little frown when they do it, just a little, you shouldn't do that, that's gross. You know, that is a mild shaming that is meant to change someone's behavior for the good for the good of the person, for the good of everybody around that person. And so there's nothing wrong inherently with shaming bad behavior. It's just that we've been conditioned, we've been taught to only see the, the bad side, the downside of shaming. And I want you to see in the Bible that shame and honor is actually something that all people do and all people are supposed to do. All right, so Proverbs is great when you're talking about subjects like this. You've seen I've gone to that well several times already. Proverbs 18.3 says, When wickedness comes, contempt comes also, and with dishonor comes disgrace. So wickedness, contempt, dishonor, disgrace, these things are supposed to go together. And most everyone can recognize that. Sadly, we're, we're completely losing our moral basis as a society, but... It used to be that everyone could agree that pedophilia was a bad thing. That this is something that was shameful. This was something that was disgraceful. This was something that was supposed to be looked down upon. It's very controversial in our society, but I believe that abortion is a bad thing. I believe that it is murder, and I believe that murder is something we're supposed to shame. We're supposed to dishonor. We're supposed to disgrace because it is disgraceful to murder an innocent child in the womb. 
Now, you might disagree. You might think that, well, that it's not a child. It's just a, a maybe going to become a child. And so there's nothing wrong with stopping it from becoming what it was going to become. And we can talk about that. We can disagree on that. But I find it to be shameful. And I'm going to treat it as a shameful thing. But I'm still going to respect you as a person. And I'm still going to dialogue with you. I'm still going to reason with you. I'm still going to honor you as someone who's created in the image and likeness of God as we try to come to a mutual understanding. Because it's kind of important that we come to a mutual understanding as a society as to what's murder and what's not murder. And that's kind of one of the basics. We need to know that. And so we need to have those discussions, and we need to do it with Christian grace. But the point here is that dishonor, disgrace, and contempt are supposed to be associated with wicked things. What we're disagreeing about is what is wicked. So when the culture sought to cancel any conservative person that you're talking about, well, they were seeking to dishonor them, to disgrace them, to show this is a bad person and we're not going to have anything to do with this person. And you know what? That's their right. They have the right to give dishonor and disgrace and contempt to those that they think are wicked. And we should expect them to do that. That's what people do. That's what moral people do. We disgrace things that we think are wicked. And so the discussion isn't about, well, should you cancel people or you should not cancel people? The discussion needs to be what is right and what is wrong. And we need to have that discussion and we need to come together or we're going to continue to fracture. There's no way to stop moral people from disgracing what they think is dishonorable. And so instead of trying to stop them from doing that, let's help them understand what is truly dishonorable, what is truly disgraceful behavior. That's what the church is here for, to proclaim light, to proclaim truth, to do it with patience, with humility. Well, we'll get to that part. So, the next verse, Leviticus 20:17. I got a lot on shame here, and I, I, I cut out tons, so we're going to try to go quickly. Leviticus 20:17. If a man takes his sister, a daughter of his father or a daughter of his mother, and sees her nakedness, that's a euphemism in the Bible for sexual relation, and she sees his nakedness, it is a disgrace and they shall be cut off in the sight of the children of their people. He has uncovered his sister's nakedness, and he shall bear his iniquity. So where it says he shall be cut off in the sight of the children of their people, well, that is refusing to have social relationships with someone because they have disgraced themselves, because they have done something wicked, something that is evil. And so you could say, well, the Bible's been canceling people you know, since the very beginning. Uh, Moses said, the people of Israel are supposed to cancel someone who does this. Okay? So let's not say, well, you shouldn't cancel anybody because that's not biblical. The Bible says, well, yeah, you do cancel people. You cut off social relationships. You might cut off economic relationships because you are discouraging a behavior that is seriously problematic, if I can use the last term there. And then Philippians 1.10, here's the flip side of it. We need to have the freedom, the social freedom, to approve what we think is excellent. Paul is praying for the Philippians in Philippians 1.10. He's praying that they would have wisdom and discernment so that they might approve what is excellent and be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. So the flip side of dishonoring behavior and the person who engages in that behavior is to honor good behavior and to encourage and lift up as good examples the people who are leading virtuous lives and being helpful, honoring to God. And so we approve of what is excellent. 
This is God's will for us. He wants us to disapprove of evil. He wants us to approve of what's good. But we can expect people in the world to act according to human nature, that they are also going to approve what they think is excellent, and they are going to disapprove of what they think is wrong. And so that's where you see that the issue gets down to how do we know what is right and wrong? How do we know what to approve, and how do we know what to disapprove? Then in Romans 1.32, I bring this verse in because it gives us a, a little bit more insight into what we're talking about here in praise and blame, shame and honor. Romans 1.32, we find out that God has written on the heart of people a knowledge of right and wrong, that people are born with a conscience. And though that conscience can be seared, though that conscience can become insensitive, though that conscience can become twisted, that every person is born with that conscience. And here it says in Romans 1.32, although they know the ordinance of God. How do they know it? Because God wrote it on their hearts. That those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. So it's possible for people to become so morally twisted that even though God has created them with a moral sense, they come to approve of things that are actually worthy of death. And we see that around us. Continuing here on the subject of praise and blame, honor and dishonor, Psalms 4.2 says, How long, O men, shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? So here we see the flip side. Here now honorable behavior is being dishonored. And we see that also in society, that honorable behavior is now dishonored. And you say, well, prove it. How do you know? Well, you know, Come to my apologetics course, and I'll tell you all about how we know that the biblical ethic is the true ethic. But we don't have time for that this morning. Isaiah 50, verses 6 through 7, is a further example. It's an extreme example of what we just talked about, about how honor can be turned into dishonor in the eyes of people. And this is actually a messianic prophecy about the Lord Jesus Christ. And you can get it in the first person here. This is what the Lord Jesus Christ was saying and thinking as he was experiencing humiliation, rejection, dishonor at the hands of his own people in his own time. He received the ultimate rejection, the ultimate cancellation when he was crucified. Can't cancel somebody any more than by crucifying them. That's the ultimate cancellation. And just as what Jesus says, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. A humiliating action to pull out a man's beard in the Middle East. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting, but the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. So he's disgraced by men publicly, but in the eyes of God, he is not disgraced. And God views him as a hero and as a virtuous example that has been given to all of us for all time to emulate. And so there's a disagreement between sinners and Christ as to what's honorable, who should be canceled and who should not be canceled. And you see that here in Isaiah 50. Now, let's apply this then to the church. Is the church supposed to shame people within the church? 1 Corinthians 15.34, Paul speaks to his beloved brothers and sisters at Corinth rather strongly, and he says, Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Shame on you, Corinthians, for not knowing what is right, not knowing what is God's will. You should know better. You shouldn't be acting this way. And so here you see the apostles shaming the Corinthians for their shameful actions. And this is an example for us that we also should shame shameful actions, not for the purpose of destroying someone, 
We have no malice, but for the purpose of helping, because sin destroys. And when someone is shamed of sin, the goal is to get them to repent so that they will no longer be destroying their soul and the souls of those that they are influencing. So then in Titus chapter 2, verse 8, just keep going here, that we are commanded that we are supposed to have sound speech that cannot be condemned. So your speech is very important. You have free speech. You can do what you want with your free speech. But if you're wise, you'll want to do what God wants you to do with your speech, and you'll have sound speech that cannot be condemned. Now, you're going to have opponents, and the opponents are going to be put to shame when they have nothing evil to say about you. Now, they've got their slanders, they've got their lies, they've got their misunderstandings, they've got their confusion and all of that. It's not that they can't say all that, but that when it's examined according to what you've actually said and what you've actually done, it's shown that they are the ones who are acting shamefully, not you. That they are the ones who are falsely accusing an innocent and righteous person, someone who loves their neighbor and serves their community, and that that's the shameful behavior, not what you're engaged with. So here's our response to being shamed for doing what is right. We have this sound speech, and then the person who is shaming that is himself showing his own shamefulness. And then finally, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 16, we are commanded to have a good conscience so that when you are slandered, doesn't say if, when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. So canceling someone can backfire. You've seen this, right? When people tried to cancel Goya Foods, their, their uh, sales went through the roof. It didn't work. And so Christians have also made that mistake sometimes where we try to cancel someone and then we just bring more attention to them. There was this sitcom that was really raunchy back in the 80s and 90s called Married with Children. And someone decided they were going to boycott that show and try to get all the advertisers to cancel. And she had some success in getting advertisers to cancel the show for a little while. But her boycott drew so much attention to the show that its ratings went through the roof and it ended up running on the air for longer than most sitcoms do. And so you have to be wise about what you boycott and what you don't boycott and how you boycott because these things can boomerang. And the way that it boomerangs on the world is that when we demonstrate that we are not malicious, when we demonstrate that, that we are benevolent and virtuous, people who have love in our hearts, then when we're slandered, they're the ones who are put to shame. So don't fear the slander of the enemy. Don't fear the attacks of the world, but instead recognize that when they try to shame what is honorable, they're only succeeding in shaming themselves, ultimately in God's eyes. So with those basic biblical principles laid out, economic freedom, equality under the law, and social freedom to honor what you think is honorable and to shame what you think is shameful, when we have that freedom, then those are the principles that are going to guide us to know what does a Christian boycott look like. A Christian boycott should be at least these six things. Number one, it should be honest. Okay? You're not slanderous when you boycott. If there's a business, a company out there that you, you know, decide not to do business with because of their negative influence in society, make sure that you've done your research and that you're not repeating false accusations that aren't true, and that you're not stretching the truth or bending the truth or anything like that. Always remember the golden rule. 
You want people to be honest about what you've said and what you've done and what your position is, so you better be honest about what they've said and what they've done and what their position is. And you want to not only be honest, but you want to give people the benefit of the doubt, just like you want to be given the benefit of the doubt. So a Christian boycott should be honest. A Christian boycott should also be just. That is, we don't rush to judgment. We have due process before we cancel somebody or something. We want to make sure that we understood what they said, that we understood what they said in context. Because certain things can be framed a certain way when you go on Twitter and you hear the short little clip, and that's not the whole story. And it's being misrepresented. Now, the left loves to do this, but you know what? The right does it too. And you better be careful that you're not retweeting something and that you're not sending out a rash judgment about someone or something just because you want it to be true. It's not true if you want it to be true. It's true if it's true. So do your research before you act against someone in a boycott or in any other way, canceling them. Number three, not only are we supposed to be just and honest, but we are supposed to be peaceful. A boycott is different from threats. It's different from intimidation. It's different from loud and obnoxious protests. A boycott just means that I'm not going to give you my money. And I don't have to give anybody my money for anything. That's part of economic freedom. But don't confuse the freedom to not spend your money on a business with the freedom to threaten or to curse or to loudly protest or to cause a disturbance around their place of business or or anything along those lines. A Christian boycott should be peaceful. Now, as I've mentioned, it's a healthy part of culture to encourage virtuous behavior and to discourage harmful behavior. And the real debate lies on what is your standard of behavior? Now, not only will Christians and Marxists disagree on what is good and what should be boycotted and what should not be boycotted, but they'll also disagree on what's the right way to do it. And so their immoral worldview is going to make them think that their immoral actions in boycotting Christians are the right way to do it. And they're going to think that there's nothing wrong with being dishonest or being rash or being not peaceful, causing civil disturbances and riots because they think the ends justify the means and that it's okay to wrong someone if you're serving a greater good. You do not fall into that mindset. It's never okay to wrong someone in order to serve a greater good. You are to be peaceful and just and honest in your dealings with everyone and every company. Then fourth, you're to be reasonable. Now, what I mean by reasonable is that when you decide to join a boycott, you allow other people the freedom to decide whether or not they want to join in that boycott. And you don't exert undue pressure upon people to do what you think needs to be done in the situation. It's fine to communicate, but there's a certain amount of pressure that is not right. And so we need to allow Christians their freedom and whether to boycott or not to boycott. Here, in 1 Corinthians 5, 9, and 10, we learn an important principle along this line where Paul says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and the swindlers or the idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. So when you look around at the businesses and the CEOs and the celebrities and all of that, if they are sexually immoral, if they're greedy, if they're swindlers, if they're idolaters... Don't be surprised, okay? That's what people are. And so 
if you're not going to have any dealings with somebody who's sexually immoral or greedy or a swindler or an idolater, then you have to go out of the world. But Jesus says, I don't want you to go out of the world. I want you to be in the world and not be of the world. And so you're going to have to do business with people who are like this. You can't boycott everything. You can't boycott everybody. But if you choose that there's a particular thing that's particularly egregious, particularly important, and you want to boycott that, you're fine. Free. You're free to do what you want with what is yours. And I'm free to do what I want with what is mine. Have I boycotted before? Yeah, I've boycotted. Do I go around and tell everybody and try to get them all on the bandwagon? No. That's not really how I run things. Uh, I don't want to exert undue influence, undue pressure. Say, well, Pastor Timothy says we're supposed to do this. Uh, You decide what you want to do with your money and what you think is good and what values you want to uphold. And I trust you to do that. And I just want to encourage you to keep on learning from Scripture what is right, what is wrong, so you can make wise choices in those areas. All right, so we have to live in the world. You can't boycott everything. God doesn't want us to do that. And then also, fifth, a boycott that is Christian should be humble. And this also ties in with what we were talking about just before. The reasonable and humble really are two ways of saying the same thing. And I've got another verse here that you can check out the whole passage here in Romans 14. I just gave two little phrases from a much larger section in verses 5 through 12 where Paul says that when it comes to matters of conscience, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. If I'm fully convinced that I shouldn't support this, then I shouldn't support it. If I say, well, I have to live in the world and I need this product and I really don't like this company for these reasons, but I'm going to go ahead and buy it anyway, I have to be convinced in my mind that what I'm doing is what God wants me to do. And each of us will give an account of himself to God. So what you do with your social power, what you do with your economic power, what you do with your political power, you're going to give an account to God. You don't have to give an account to me. You don't have to give an account to the church. We're going to try to encourage you. We're going to try to help you. We're going to try to teach you. But you're an individual, and you're responsible before God in these areas. And so there's humility when we give other people the freedom to make their own choices in these matters. If somebody joins a boycott, what about the subsidiaries of the parent company? Do we boycott those? Should vendors who sell to the boycotted company also be boycotted? And how do you know if your boycott is being effective? Or maybe it's boomeranging and backfiring and now their sales are going up. See, there's a lot that's in here. So don't think you know everything. Do your best with the knowledge that you have, but don't go around telling everyone else what, what you think you know when you really don't know that much. And let's be humble about it, all right? And then finally, number six, a Christian boycott is gracious. That is, we are gracious towards those that we are boycotting. We honor the image of God in people, even when we disagree with what they are promoting and we think that they're being a negative influence in society, we still honor them as a person who is created in the image and likeness of God. And that's where we're coming to Titus. So open your Bibles to Titus chapter 3. This is one of my favorite passages personally. I always come back to to remind myself to encourage myself how I'm supposed to act towards people who are in the world. I think it puts it so powerfully and so succinctly here. I want to read the whole passage. Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. Paul writes to us as Christians, and he's writing to a pastor, Titus, who's supposed to instruct us on these things. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. Always follow the chain of command. Okay? Don't be a rebel. We submit to the governing authorities to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, 
It doesn't matter what they've said. It doesn't matter what they've done. It doesn't matter how much you hate what they're promoting in society. You speak evil of no one. It doesn't mean you can't point out the evil that they're doing, but you don't lie. You don't misrepresent. You treat them with respect as a human being, and you have that conscience before God. that You're not using your mouth in any way that is wrong. To avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. And that's one of the things I really like about the video I'm going to send out this week is Juan showed perfect courtesy towards all people even as they were showing such imperfect courtesy towards him and boycotting his store. And he was a great Christian example. For we ourselves were once foolish. Here's the reason. Why do we show perfect courtesy towards those who are foolish? Because we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Cancel culture, it seems like they spend their days in malice and envy, hating one another and being hated by others. But, verse 4, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. He saved us out of the world that we're trying to reach. So when you're boycotting, don't get on your high horse and think that you're better than these people. Remember that God saved you out of that exact same situation and that your purpose in this world is not to boycott, although you can do it if you want. I'm not saying it's bad. Your purpose in this world is to reach people for Christ. And so let everything you do have that mindset. He saved us. We didn't save ourselves. We weren't just good people who didn't need saving. He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. We want people in the world to be regenerated. We want them to be renewed. And so that's why we speak evil of no one and we show perfect courtesy towards all people. And then it ends this way. The Holy Spirit has been poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Make sure that if you boycott, it is a good work that you are doing and is not an evil work. These things are excellent and profitable for people, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, he is self-condemned. Are there people who are warped and sinning and self-condemned? Yes. Do we show them every courtesy? Yes. Do we also shame them for their behavior? Yes. And so this is what God has given us to be able to model our lives after. And we have to keep going back to it. Don't go online and just imitate the online personalities who are conservative. Go to Scripture, read it, follow and imitate the Lord Jesus Christ, And that's what we're going to do. We're going to keep on reading. We're going to keep on teaching. We're going to keep on preaching God's word so that we can live the way that Christ would live if he were here in our life, in our situation, in all the varied places that we live and work and serve. So, in conclusion, look up 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 14 through 3, 17. Just read that whole passage and it will really help you understand what is the Christian life in the world supposed to look like. And then... A few closing words here just to to tie it all together, okay? You've got political power, you've got economic power, you've got social power, and you'll be judged as to how you use the power that God has given you. The bottom line on boycotts and canceling 
is you have to choose wisely where you're going to invest your efforts. Don't think that your boycott's going to change the world. Don't look for dramatic change. Look to brighten the corner where you are and be faithful with the little bit of change that you are able to bring about. If you can be a good influence, great. Be a good influence and don't worry about whether or not you see this dramatic worldwide change. Instead, just be responsible for where God has placed you and the people around you that God has placed you with and the friendships that you have. Don't get so focused on the big picture. Focus on your own life and your own circle. Support local businesses, support Christian businesses, all that. Utilize your political, economic, and social power wisely and benevolently. That's the key. Number two, learn biblical values. Okay? You might think you have biblical values, but I'm here to tell you, you don't have as much as you'd like as God would like you to have, and you need to keep growing in your interpersonal relationships, in your patience with your wife and your husband and your children. You need to grow as a Christian so that when you have conflict with people in the world who are coming from a totally different position, that Christ-likeness is built into you and it just comes out naturally. So be forming biblical values so that when you do influence your culture in our own little small ways, that you're doing it truly in a valuable way. So keep on learning biblical values. Don't think you've arrived. And then third, expect cancellation. Okay? They canceled Jesus. They canceled Paul. They canceled Peter. They're going to cancel us too. It's not surprising. They have totally different values. Their moral system is completely opposite. They're going to think that what you're doing is shameful and dishonorable and should be punished. That's the world. The Bible has always told us that that's the way it's always been. So don't be surprised. Don't think it's something weird or unusual. This is normal. And normal isn't good, but it's to be expected. And it's only for a time. God is going to cancel the world soon enough and will be resurrected. And so the turnaround is coming. 